Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyson, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners again, as I always do every time I come on these podcasts, because without listeners, there would be no podcasts, there would be no you, uh, there would be no show. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all your support, uh, both at SoundCloud and at my website. And I happen to come across this, this book called The Productivity Habits. Um, through one of the publicists, and I have Ben Elijah joining us uh, from London, England, on the other end of the line. Ben, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. I know it's uh, a little bit late there. It's after hours, but I appreciate you taking the time to do this interview today with me and speaking about your new book, which, by the way, for my listeners, it's a lid publishing book. It's at lidpublishing.com. And it's called The Productivity Habits, A Simple Approach to Become More Productive. A little bit about Ben. He's a coach. He's a speaker. He's an author. He's worked in some of the world's biggest technology firms and now helps individuals and organizations build better relationships with conflicting information in a complex world. And boy, do we need this. I mean, we are in such a what I call frenetic kind of environment with this. But my good friend David Allen always used to say, it isn't the amount of information that we have. It's what you allow to come across your transit. And I'm sure we're going to get into that um, with Ben. Now, Ben, you mentioned that productivity is not about how much stuff that we can manage, but about the matter of mastery and perspective. For my listeners who are out there, what advice would you give a busy executive or a middle manager or anybody that's sitting in the cubicle right now trying to master themselves and their resources? What advice do you have? Ooh, that's a deceptively difficult question. Um, what advice would I give? I think before you get into any of this stuff, um, I think you have to really evaluate what it is that you really care about. Um, actually, I'll let you in on a bit of a secret. Since publishing this book, um, I, I kind of, I've decided that if I could write it again, I would eliminate the word productivity from it. Because actually, I think truly productivity is the wrong word. Um, I think effectiveness is the correct word. And the reason I say that is that I think the productivity brings, you know, it brings me a sort of mental image of some sort of, you know, Victorian industrial hellhole in the northwest of England where someone's going to work 18 hours a day at a, you know, <laughs> maintaining machines or doing whatever, um, you know, cranking out widgets. Whereas effectiveness has to start with doing something that has meaning to you. So if you're in the cubicle and you've worked a 12-hour day and your wife's about to leave you and your blood pressure is 160 over 90 or whatever, um, I think you kind of have to ask by saying, do you want to get better at a job that you hate? Or would you rather find something that you adore that you're not very good at at the moment, but that you can get better at? Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's a much deeper question because that goes into the meaning, the question of meaning and purpose that people have in their life, mm -hmm. which you, you mentioned this in the book. You say, look, um, being productive requires that you find things that we love or that we have desires to do. And I think that is a major question for anybody out there working. But your book does give really, really sound advice on habits. And mm. that's what I want to focus on because, you know, changing either 
bad habits or habits that we've gotten into is really about this book. And the focus is the habits. In each section of this book and the way it's laid out, it's uniquely laid out, is about changing one of those habits. So let's speak about the importance of capturing data. Mm. Um, this is something my good friend David Allen always used to talk about. I think any quote, and I'll use the word efficiency expert, would talk about that versus productivity expert. Um, to, to, what, what do you recommend using to become more efficient at capturing data? Because we've got so much of it going by us. Some of it we think we need to keep. Uh, other parts of it, we know it's you know going into our um, either our social mailbox or it's going into the promotions mailbox or you know we've all come up with ways to try and filter. But what would you tell people today about filtering, capturing the right stuff? Well, first and foremost, I'd say that um, uh, actually, just before, uh, before I get into it, I would say that uh, getting things done has been probably the biggest inspiration for this book and my my work in general outside of this book and um if you read getting things done and you read the productivity habits you'll probably find a a really broad basis of familiarity between them um that's not to say that it's not original there's a whole ton of original research and original um stuff that's gone in there um but i guess the really salient point about capture is very much that of david allen's which is that you know your brain did not evolve as a storage mechanism your brain evolved to make decisions and to create stuff and to synthesize new information. It did not evolve to store that information. I think it's also quite interesting that your brain is, um, I say you're in the royal sense, um, your brain is actually quite hostile to the information which it creates, which is an interesting point, and it makes perfect sense, but I don't think that maybe it's not something you'd considered, um, that... You know, you might have a fantastic idea, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but if you have it in, a, in an inappropriate environment where you've got more important things to think about and you switch your attention to that thing you've got to think about, then that idea is at serious risk. You know, who's come up with great ideas and forgotten them a minute, forgotten them a minute later? It's the most frustrating thing ever. So write it down. It doesn't matter how. It doesn't matter what tool you use. You could write it on the back of your hand or you could use a smartphone or anything in between, it doesn't matter. Um, get it out of your head, make it safe. Now, that's basic advice. I don't think that that's going to be a surprise to anybody. What you've got to do, though, is get consistent with it. And this is why I think looking at it in terms of a habit is really important, where the event which occurs, which is that you've had this idea, um, focus on that. The routine, of course, is the behavior of writing it down in a list that's very basic. Um, and think about the reward. Think about, okay, well, what is this? What, what kind of craving can I derive from this whole experience that means that I want to do this again? So right now, if I have a great idea, I kind of feel compelled to write it down. I feel really like panicky almost or anxious if I can't write down that idea. And the payoff that I get is a feeling of relief that I've made the idea safe. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that my particular neuroses are something that uh, we're going to want to spread to all of uh, all of our listeners today but um, nonetheless it, having something where you can say okay this is now something that my brain considers an automatic routine which is essentially what a habit is um, that's really powerful because then as soon as you get an idea you write it down there's no negotiation there's no ambiguity about it you have an idea 
it gets out of your head immediately. Mm-hmm. And then that's, that's got to be the foundation for any of the, you know, the, the funky stuff that you can layer on top of that. Isn't it the connecting of the idea to the actual execution upon the idea? I mean, you know, if you just keep stacking up ideas, we could all come up with a plethora of ideas. Um, but then it's got to go someplace into a project, right? Someplace where it now hmm. that that manifestation of that idea starts. There's an incubation process associated with that. Um, what well, what do you yeah? What do you tell people? You know, let's say they vetted all their ideas. They got fifty on a piece of paper, and they decide, well, here's a great one. I want to go for it. Um, hmm. What is the next step that you would recommend? Well, it depends on the on the idea, and it depends how, um, like how close it is to your sphere of competence. I'll give you an example. Um, if I'm a professional architect, and I assure you that I'm not, <laughs> um, but if I were a professional architect and I had the intention to build a house, mm-hmm. um, that project is going to be much closer to my sphere of competence than it is for a 30-something writer who lives in London. Um, And so consequently, I'm going to need to do a hell of a lot more planning, a hell of a lot more envisioning, and an awful lot more project management. And the project that I will create, if I sort of put it in a traditional Gantt chart, is going to be a hell of a lot bigger for myself than it would be for, say, an architect or someone who is actually competent at this because they've internalized a lot of the the behaviors. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'm not going to um, uh, continue that point too long, but I make it because if you are great at this thing, if you, you know, if you, if you know how to do this, um, then whatever supporting information that you need, whether that's, you know, a project management system, whether that's just a list on a bit of paper in your back pocket should only be as complicated as it needs to be mm-hmm. based on the way that you think. And there's a section in the book, um, which is uh, the fifth habit, which is thinking about your working memory. Right. right. Um, where I talk about that. Yep. You, so, you know, you you have all this broken down into these various habits, Ben, and um, mm. we're going to go through some of those. I'd like you to answer some questions about them. Um, but before we get to them, a real quick uh, little comment about email. Most people, you say, their email's a train wreck. Um, <laughs> you know, why is it so, and what quick advice would you have for people for either cleaning it up or becoming more efficient at managing it. What would you say? Oh, my goodness. Well, I would say that um, the very, very best expertise that you can get on this is probably, you know, you want to start off with someone like Merlin Mann as well as David Allen um, because they've been thinking and writing and talking about this probably a lot more concisely than I have. Um, so I'd definitely start with those guys. Um, I, my, my perspective on email is a, is a bit interesting. Um, I think I, like a lot of people got my first email account in the nineties. And when you get an email from someone, it's like a present, it's like a gift and you get a little buzz, a little endorphin hits. Like, oh, I've had a little present of attention from someone. And I'm not entirely sure that people have got out of that, have got out of that habit. And of course, now the you know that that gift has become a burden, um, and 
people haven't necessarily developed different strategies for dealing with email. You know, we're still trying to, st we still have this 90s mindset. Um, I think also email as a technology sucks. And um, it's quite interesting. It's a technology that goes back to the 70s. And again, it hasn't really evolved that way in terms of the user experience. So, okay, I'm not, that's not a solution. That's just describing the constraints that we're under. Um, I think that um, you should consider the volume of email that you get, the relative relevance of that email, which is to say how important is this stuff, forgetting how urgent it is. That's something else. And then when you look at urgency, well, you know, am I getting emails that I need to respond to and, let, and if I don't, someone's going to die? Mm -hmm. And that's going to determine, the relevance determines, and again, this is another section in the book, relevance determines the attention that you give to a particular channel of information. A novel that you adore, you're going to be spending a hell of a lot longer looking at than a bank statement, um, I hope. And something which is high volume needs to be looked at less often. Which right. sounds, a bit, sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's much more efficient to batch up um, reviews of information um, when there's a lot of uh, when you accumulate a lot of information um, conversely anything which is very urgent you need to check more often so if you're getting a lot of really rubbish email and then you're getting five percent of it which is deadly urgent you need to think about splitting that up into two separate channels got it now whether that's telling you know your vips to send a text message rather or, or a slack message or whatever rather than emailing you or whether that's using some sort of email filtering system to you know put that in a separate box which you know whenever they send a message that it dings you i don't know whatever um, there are loads of different ways to do it um that's a really really healthy habit Well, so you've got some you've got some habits, but you basically said you kind of defrayed it to Merlin Mann. So for those of you who are uh, out there, David Allen or Merlin Mann, it's MerlinMann.com. And he's an independent writer, speaker, and broadcaster out of San Francisco. He's got some uh, great things. Uh, he created 43 folders um, and quite a few things. You might want to check with him on that as well. So habit two is about processing. I think that most information workers are looking for a sense of completion and satisfaction in their work bin. And, mm. you know, look, everybody here is working with email or creating Word documents or working on Excel spreadsheets or whatever it is that they do during the day. What is it that project, why is it that projects don't get completed and that our sense of satisfaction is low? And what do you recommend to shift this endless cycle of non-completion? Well, I think a lot of it is that projects are very ill-defined. Ah. And yep. we, don't, we don't define, I say we, we it's a horrible, <laughs> horrible, horribly bad habit of me to keep saying we. Um, one doesn't define a project correctly and therefore the project is almost doomed to failure. If you don't have an objective, if you don't have an owner, if you don't have a budget and you don't have a time scale, you're, you, you, you're screwed before you even begin. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. And I think also if you're working with a project where um, there's a lot of other people involved and they've got very conflicting objectives um, or conflicting agendas, that can obviously create an awful lot of friction, which needs to be dealt with. Um, and then you get into a problem of effective project management. Um, 
so loads of different reasons why i think just for personal projects you know the the holiday that i've not yet been on or the you know the house i'm yet to buy or you know the shelves that i haven't yet put up um i think very often when i talk to people they report procrastination i guess you must have seen this and i think again you know it's it's a problem which i'm ill-qualified to entirely describe i think you also need to be talking to some psychotherapists um but one of the things that's really helped me with procrastination is being able to break a project down so that each task equals one intention Mm -hmm. and that means that if i can perform this task without doing a huge amount of thought and i can just check it off then i get that little buzz again that little reward which helps to drive the habit so that little buzz of saying hey i've just done something And it's now checked off my list and I'm going to get a little buzz from that. And if you can get into that state of flow with any of your projects, um, then it becomes a hell of a lot easier to complete them. But you don't sort of feel like you're working too hard, which is always a nice feeling. Mm -hmm. But you are getting that sense of satisfaction that you're looking for. Um, I would say I would say, though, sorry to interrupt, but that um, this is hard. Like doing this stuff is hard and I think it's difficult to, um, you know, we're in a world where I think a lot of people think, oh, well, if I just buy this app, I'm going to become more productive. Or if I just sort of buy this book and then it's sit on my, co- on my coffee table and it's going to make me more productive. Um, no, this is a practice and it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of discipline. And um, you've got people like me who try and make it a little bit easier for you, but ultimately it's like giving up smoking. You know, you've, you've got to work at it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think anyone who wants easy answers is going to be disappointed. So now you talk about the, the right tools and I know you don't like to get into recommending other people's tools. That's not really <laughs> what you're about, but you do have a section in the book and you cover a lot of ground in this section from handwriting, recording, mind mapping, <clears throat> There's a lot of things. There are so many great tools that have been devised. Um, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's out there trying to look at all of these tools from mind mapping to all this various software now that assists us in organizing the to-do list and it goes on and on and on and on. Um, what's the best way to kind of evaluate that? Well, I think think about the jobs you need to do. First and foremost, um, any information work can be described in two categories, which is capturing and compiling, which is to say, thinking of being a writer. Um, well, capturing information is, of course, just writing stuff down. Compiling it means editing it. It means putting it in the right structure. It's more about, you know, well, editing It's more about um, making decisive uh, decisions about what I'm doing rather than just, you know, free form creativity. There's a huge difference between the two. And think about the way that your work corresponds to that. So, for example, if you have to go to a lot of meetings and you're taking notes, well, that's a capturing exercise. But then you've got to write them up into a report or prepare them into a spreadsheet or build a presentation or whatever. And that's a compile exercise. Now, those two categories correspond to different sets of tools. So you have tools which I call analog tools, although in truth, you can get a lot of digital tools that that do this that let you work with a lot of information, like your voice, you can make any sound, or with a pen, you can make any shape on a 2D plane. There's mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of information there if you look at it in terms of entropy. Um, 
but they're very intuitive. They're not abstract at all. You know, you learn to speak at a very young age or, you know, using a pen is not difficult for the most technophobic person. They can still use a pencil. Um, so it's quite interesting that these high entropy, low abstraction tools are fantastic for capture. Whereas for compiling information where you want to make decisions, you need less information at any instant, but you are prepared to tolerate a higher level of abstraction, such as cut, copy and paste. Um, so that's maybe where I want to start looking at a computer or a tablet or something like that. Um, so what you're then looking to do is say, OK, well, I'm going to start capturing information. I now need to compile it. So you're looking at a workflow. How do I go from step one to step two? Uh, of course, lots of different ways to do that. What I would say is experiment. Once you've identified those jobs that you need to do, experiment with different tools. Um, don't feel constrained if you've only ever used a pen and paper. You know, try mind mapping or try doodling or sketchnoting or recording your voice or even some combination of, of all of those. And try different tools. You know, if you've only ever used a list to manage your, your tasks, I mean, try something visual. Try something which is more of a structured outline or something like that. I think that's great advice because it gives the opportunity for the end user to kind of experience different modalities of how they would um, capture this information. And I know for me, I've had to experiment a lot. You know, I've got a, I've got a neopen. I've got certain things, and I find in certain situations, and that's where we're going to go next. Um, these tools work better than in other situations. And you, you ask the reader to understand what situation, um, mm. they're in, um, and to, are they in an enabling situation, you call it, or a constraining situation to get things done mm. and managing tasks in the old numbering system you said is pretty much out. Although you do see, um, a lot of these programs, um, that give priority to these tasks like Todoist and many of the others, you know, what's the priority. But speak with my listeners about how to be more effective and understanding how to manage the situations, meaning are they in a constraining situation or are they in a situation where they're enabled to get things done? Fantastic points. Um Situational awareness is, in my opinion, um, it's been the most important thing for me personally. Um, I have a, a relatively mild case of bipolar disorder, and um, you know, lucky enough that it's not prevented me from being able to function. Um, but that means that my mood and my mental state is as much a part of my environment as space and place. Right. Um, so I think first and foremost, it's important to recognize that any situation that you're in is a function of space, time and thought. What I mean by that is to say that, you know, if you're in a particular location, the time that, you've, you, that you're in that situation and the time that you're going to be in that situation and other qualitative things associated with that. So am I going to get interrupted often, for example, is a very important thing. You know, if you're sitting in an office and you've got you're on your own. As, whereas if you're in the office and there's other people there and the phone's ringing, it's a totally different environment, even though you're sitting in the same chair. And likewise for, for thought and mood, um, you know, how much information is floating around in the environment? How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. And these are really, really important. And there's a concept 
a concept in the book called the context triangle mm-hmm. um, because in in GTD we think about context, um, which I think is the best word for this. And I describe how you can use uh, the context triangles, again, space, time and thought, um, to relate every situation that you're in to the kind of tasks that you can perform or that are best performed in that kind of situation. Um, so, for example, if I'm sitting in a cafe for 10 minutes, it's not necessarily the right situation for me to have a one-hour phone call. Right. For obvious reasons. Um, or to sort of sit down and spend and start trying to edit my book because that's going to require a hell of a lot of attention and it's going to require... Um, you know, a good amount of sort of closed creativity, but there's lots of distractions going on. Um, so, you know, being able to relate the different situations in which you find yourself to the tasks that you have to do, that can be incredibly powerful. And the book talks about that. Um, but also it gives you the ability to say, well, hang on, I need to be doing some real creative stuff, but I'm not putting myself in, in situations which are conducive to high levels of focused creativity. Mm-hmm. So maybe I need to change my lifestyle. Maybe I need to, you know, what I'm going to spend Saturday afternoon at a library. So it empowers you to make those sort of decisions because you can then judge how your lifestyle suits the work that you need to be doing or that you want to be doing. No, it's great advice, and I think that it's uh, it's something that for me in particular, um, I know I get distracted, so I have to find the right situation for things. Um, Mm. Hang on a second. Hang on. Sorry about that. I That's have, quite all right. Sounds I like have, someone wants your attention. Yes, yes, and uh, it happened to be that I try and do these at a time. I don't normally do these at 12 in the day. Um, they're usually done very early in the morning because um, I have to actually um, try and get in this room where things are a little bit quieter, and it doesn't look like that's happening right now. So hang on one second. Hang on. Of course. Let's see if we can proceed. We tried to fix it. Okay, okay. this will obviously be edited out. So, um, oh, man, this is maybe <laughs> she has somebody that came in the house. Hang on a second. Hold on. Okay. Okay, let's try and complete. So we've only okay, got perfect. about we've only got five minutes to the end anyway. So um, let me uh, frame this question, um, Ben. You know, working memory is one of the chapters you have, and it's habit five. And you su- suggest that when working through our what to do, 
that we should create a verb, a subject, and an object. Mm. Now, while this might sound simple, I'll bet many of my listeners are not approaching their projects this way. What advice do you have, and can you explain this magical number theory by George Miller that you reference in the book? Yes, of course. Um, it's a fabulous uh, concept that Miller came up with decades ago, um, which is that you can only hold, um, I think it was six or seven chunks of information in your head at any one time. Now, that means like in your short term memory, in your working memory. Um, so, um, you know, you think about the length of a, of a phone call, of a phone number, um, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. Well, in the U.S. without the, uh, you know, without the prefix code. Um, and certainly in the U.K., phone numbers are roughly the same, this, you know, that sort of length. And you can remember it. Most people can remember it for, you know, a few seconds, maybe a minute, enough time to punch it into the phone. Um, or, you know, remembering, uh, how can I describe this sort of, if, if you think about sort of trying to count um a small number of objects, you know, when you look at them instantly, you can see that there's four or five perhaps at a glance, but anything much beyond that, you have to start counting them. Um, and this all relates to the amount of information that you can retain in your working memory. Um, the point is, it's very, very limited. There's a very small amount of information which you can retain. And so when you think about how you're constructing your tasks and how you're constructing your projects. Well, when you're writing a task, when you're writing a task, you kind of have to keep your task in mind. And it needs to have the maximum amount of meaning and yet remain in your head for as long as possible because you ideally don't want to be having to look at your task management system to remind you what you are currently doing right now. Um, you know, you should only look at it to determine what you want to do next. So one of the really cool things that you can do is start taking advantage of your brain's capacity for language. Um, so if you think about an intention, uh, which is really what a task is, um, if I want to express it, I'm going to use a sentence, uh, which might be, I don't know, take £100 out of the bank um, for my birthday party. Yeah, I don't know why I'd be paying for my birthday party, but hey, uh, selfish friends. Um, so in that sort of, if I can describe my task as a sentence, then it contains all of the necessary information that for it to make sense for me, it's not overwhelming me with too much information and I can remember the intention long enough. The reason a sentence is important is that it's the most, um, complete way of describing or the most minimal way of describing a complete thought, um, it comes from the same Latin root as sentient, um, which uh, says a lot. Um, and a subject, a verb, and an object in that order is the minimum requirement for a proper sentence in English. And I re reorder it slightly because a task is written in the imperative tense um, because you want something to happen. So verb, subject, object, um, you know, write down, you know, write up my meeting notes, for example, is uh, uh, a perfect example of, uh, of a task. Um, and if you can get in the habit of doing that, rather than just writing down the word bank or meeting notes or bicycle, you know, in a week, you might not remember what bicycle means. Whereas if you were to write uh, fixed puncture on bicycle, 
um, it makes perfect sense. And any person would be able to look at that and it would, and they'll be able to do it. And mm-hmm. if you think of your, if you think of your future self as another person and that what you're doing right now is delegating tasks to your future self, who isn't necessarily you right now, um, and you treat your future self as another person, then it becomes a lot easier to do that. That's great advice, thinking about yourself as a future person. And I want to let my listeners know that, you know, the productivity habits, um, obviously you have eight in the book, but the book is great. It's a short read. It's an easy read. Um, it's also something that there's some great graphs and charts in here that you can pull out of here and use and maybe even, you know, put up above your desk. I mean, Ben has done his homework, folks. This is a great book. Um, not a difficult read. Like he said, you could probably read this on the train on your way to work or on your way home from work if you're commuting via bus or train or Uber or however you're getting there. But Ben, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth to talk about your new book called The Productivity Habits, A Simple Approach to Become More Productive. How can our listeners learn a little bit more about you, uh, your website, um, any place they can listen to maybe some um, other audio or video recordings that you might have? Are you out there on YouTube? Um, what is your handle there? I, uh, I sometimes think I have a face for radio, so I'm not on, uh, I'm not on YouTube. Okay. Um, but um, I've got so my website is inkandben.com, I N K A N D B E N.com. I tweet at Ink and Ben. Um, and to be honest, that's prob- those are probably my two most active channels. So, okay. um, so if you want to see what I N K A N D B E N would be where you would reach him. And um, you can get this book on Amazon, all the best booksellers. Um, is this also a Kindle book? I would presume it is. It's not, actually. It's not on Kindle. Um, okay. We have it on Google and on iBooks. Okay, Google and iBooks. So for all of those who want to get a copy of this, uh, go to Google and iBooks. You are on Amazon. You're just not in, in ebook. Is that correct? You're just not? That is that's okay. correct, yes. Okay, so you can get this tiny book with a little bookmark on it, a place to hold it shut. It's really, really cute. The design is awesome. Uh, the book is awesome. Uh, ben, For thanks for being on the show with me and spending a little bit of time to talk about your book and some of the uh, habits that we should start to really think about um, and implement into our life. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me.